0: Quick question, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of Jonah? Familiar with the story of Jonah, okay. So that's a problem that we might have to overcome over the course of this series. Um, and here's why. I, I, th- I think it might actually be a problem because if, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah at all, you you might have an image in your head of, of, of something that looks a little bit like this, right? Um, if, you, if you have... An image in your head of, uh, let's, if we can throw those um, Jonah pictures out. There we go. Awesome. We're getting there. We're getting there. I'm throwing our slides guy all over the place really quick. If you have an image in your head at all of what Jonah looks like, it probably sounds like Jonah and the whale. Right? If I asked you uh, a different question, however, not um, have you read Jonah or are you familiar with it, but have you thoughtfully gone through the book of Jonah before, I'm guessing probably a few... Uh, less hands might have been raised and and this is this is the issue right because most of us if we're being honest uh, our familiarity with the book of Jonah doesn't come from deep and thoughtful study it probably usually comes from something that's been mediated to us through children's literature right and and so if I'm familiar with the book of Jonah more often than not it's because uh, a tomato and a cucumber told me about it and that's the problem Because Jonah's not actually about a fish. The book of Jonah is is, uh, a wonderfully complex and and brilliantly told story in the Old Testament. In fact, in my opinion, one of the most brilliantly told stories in the entire Bible. And uh, we're going to unpack that over the next four weeks. Um, But what what we begin to see is that um, while entertaining media comes to mind when we think about Jonah, it's not actually... Um, it's not bad. It's just children's literature is not bad. We watch Veggie Tales at our house. It's just intentionally simplistic, right? Um, and, and Jonah is is filled. It's filled with so many amazing um, storytelling techniques to begin to intentionally highlight certain things about the book of Jonah, and it and it uses wit. And irony and humor and stereotypes and and, uh, satire to really begin to tell the story to get the point across to God's people. And what what this book does is it exposes Jonah, God's man, who's a horrible person, by the way. Jonah is a terribly flawed man. He's an awful person. Um, and And it exposes him and it holds him up for public exposure and critique And what the storyteller is doing in the book of Jonah, which we're going to see over the next four weeks, is he's really holding up a mirror to the condition of our own hearts. Okay, going through the book of Jonah is going to be a very convicting journey. And I can just say from experience, just even studying this, I don't feel adequate enough to preach this. I don't think anybody is here. Like not, none of us are like, hey, we're so much better than Jonah, but somehow we got to get through the book of Jonah. So that's why I'm here this morning. And, and we're going to be going through the book of Jonah because what, what, what we're going to begin to see is that um, in the way that the, the story is told, the writer intentionally is drawing you in. To this wild and extreme circumstance, and you're going like, "Wow, the man of God, he's, he's running away from God in the bow and the huge uh, storm, and these scary people and, um, and, and these pagan sailors are turning to God, and, and even the king's cows are repenting, and then the, what, what's going on? And you're just drawn into the story, and what you don't realize, unless you're paying attention, is at the very end someone's like punching you in the gut." And you're going like, "Oh!" That's what I'm like. That this, this is designed to hold up a mirror to the condition of my own heart. It's aimed at revealing the worst tendencies inside of me to try to to try to quantify God, to try to put him into this quantifiable religious formula that he's much more interested in breaking out of and bringing his mercy and his grace to the entire world. This story is going to begin to reveal tendencies inside of God's people like hard-heartedness and small-mindedness in tribalism or racism, and, and, and trying to limit God and what he's actually interested in doing in this world. And, 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 and if I'm not careful, I'm not going to let God's word change me. I'm not going to let his grace surprise me and bring me into something that is so much better than I ever had imagined. And so it's one of those things where you think you're reading this harmless tale, and then, and then you get to the end and you're like, oh, gut punch. That was actually designed and aimed at me. So a bit of a disclaimer before we get too deep in the seaweed. This series is probably going to challenge the ways that you want to limit God. It's it's probably going to expose ungodliness in every single one of us and, and try to pry open your mind to the expansiveness of God's grace that is a little bit bigger than any one of us could possibly imagine. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and dive in. Before we dive in, actually, uh, would you join me in prayer? I I feel the absolute necessity to come before God because if if anything's going to happen over the course of these next four weeks, if God is going to... St- use this word at all to speak to you. It will not be because of me, it will be through me, and he's going to be the one speaking. So I'm I'm just going to join you together, and we're going to ask God to speak to us this morning. God, as we open your word today, I pray that our hearts would be soft. Unlike Jonah's God, I pray that you would find moldable hearts here in this room and online. I pray that we would be ready to receive your word and not just run away from the things that are discomforting to us. Pray that you would speak to us this Lord this morning Lord. Amen. Hmm. Jonah 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Now I want to stop right there. We're going to slowly Work our way through this, and I'm not going to read any one chunk all at the same time. But we're going to slowly work our way through this. And I want to stop right here because this is significant. Uh, This this is cluing us into something. What is this cluing us into? Who does this happen to? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This happens to prophets, right? The word of the Lord came to him. That's what happens with prophets. Prophets would receive a word from the Lord, and then they would go and and speak. To God's people, whether it was foretelling the future or forthtelling into the current present moment or both, God's prophets were designed to receive a word from God and speak on his behalf. Now, what you're going to notice is Jonah is a minor prophet in terms of Old Testament books. There's major prophets like Isaiah simply because they're longer. Right? Jonah's a minor prophet, not because he's less important, but because the book is shorter. And, and in most of the prophets, what you're going to notice is at the beginning of the book, you'll see something similar to that. The word of the Lord came to Obadiah. The word of the Lord came to Nahum. The word of the Lord came to Malachi, for example. And, and often in these books, what would happen is God's word would come to God's person, God's prophet, and he would speak copy-paste. He would just say what God said and say it to his people. So the word of the Lord would come to his people through his prophet. That's not actually the case in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, what's interesting, it's a very unique book in not only the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. It's a very unique book because God's word is coming to God's people through a story about God's prophet. Right? And, and so it wasn't quite as a direct communication like that. Right? It was, it was much more like, if you want to receive God's word, you don't just hear what the prophet is saying. That's not the case in the book of Jonah. If you want to receive God's word, you actually have to read and re-read, reread and deeply think about what the the message of the story as a whole is, which again is not about the fish. Okay. So in order to get to receive God's word from the book of Jonah, we actually have to understand what the message of the story is. It's going to be very important. So with that in mind, we have to understand how to interpret this passage. So I'm going to go into teacher mode for just a minute, just to help clarify a few things of context of what the book of Jonah is about, and we'll get jumping back into verse 1. But um, just as, as a way of context, as a reminder, the Bible is like a small library, right? Sixty-six different books, a bunch of different authors, written over three, almost 3,000 years, all compiled into one book. And there's many different genres that these books fall into. Some books even have multiple genres within them, right? So you might have um, apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. You might have prophetic literature, right? Which is kind of like what Jonah's in. It's a subcategory within that genre. You have poetic literature. And even within poetic literature, you've got a whole host of different genres within that. You've got um, psalms, which are going to be like psalms and, and, and communal worship liter- uh, uh poetry you've got wisdom poetry like in the book of proverbs you even got erotic poetry which we're not going to go into but um and then you got like uh, historical narrative right so you have like uh genesis or judges or the book of acts and 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 it, you don't read these the same way you don't you read them in their natural context right so there's some books of the bible that you're not actually going to read literally now before you start throwing stones at me this is what i mean <laughs> I I very much believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. But what I mean by that is you're going to interpret it naturally. So there's passages, for example, in the book of the Psalms where God is described as like a mother hen who like broods over her chickens. Is God a mother hen? Literally, no. Like it's a metaphor to say God really cares for his people. You're not going to read that literally, but you can read that naturally because you naturally understand what the author is trying to say. So you have to understand how to interpret each genre of literature within the Bible in order to correctly receive the message that the author is portraying and that God is speaking through that human author. And so uh, in, in the book of Jonah, what we're going to discover is it's really unique within the genre of uh, prophetic books. This is a genre that's a lot like, um, it, it's very similar to comic book satire. Okay, and I can't wait to unpack this for you. Uh, And I I refer to it as prophetic satire, okay? There's a real historical account about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and the storyteller is using humor and irony to critique the the stupidity and character flaws of each of these characters. Okay, so the storytelling technique that's used in the book of Jonah is going to be very similar to... um, like a, like a comic book uh, or, or an anime show or, um, or something of the sort. So that's why I've asked Grant to help me depict these. Uh, th- this was drawn by Grant Overbeek, and uh, he did a really good job. Over the next four weeks, I'm going to reveal four different drawings that he has done, um, and uh, really to help us get in the mindset that the book of Jonah is less about a fish and a tomato and a cucumber, and it's more about an amazingly complex and... Uh, uh, Intense storytelling technique to help us to get into the story to understand what is the message of this book as a whole Okay, and so round of applause for this for grant by the way. He did an amazing job. I am in love with these I am in love with these Um, So this story uh, depicts multiple different scenes with very intense imagery Now, it's not making things up. It's not exaggerating things, but it's intentionally selecting uh, the intense uh, uh, scenes in this story to make a point, to draw you in the story and to make a specific specific point. It's prophetic satire. And so in very literal sense, it is very comic. It is very comic as you're reading through the book of Jonah. Um, And so uh, it's filled with all of these stereotyped characters who, here's the irony, don't live up to their stereotypes. That's, the book of Jonah is, is classic for doing this. So it's going to take like the man of God, Jonah the prophet, who runs away and hates his God, who's angry at his God. It's going to take these pantheistic pagan sailors, and in this story they have paper-thin consciences and like, turn to God immediately. It's going to take the king of the most murderous, evil um, empire known to man up until that point on, uh, on planet Earth, up until that point in history, and he humbles himself before God and even his cows repent. Okay, it's like, it's taking these stereotypes and flipping them on their heads. So that's one of the techniques used in the book of Jonah. Additionally, everything's huge. In the book of Jonah, everything is big and intense and extreme and huge. Uh, for example, the Hebrew word for like big or large or, or enormous is gadol. And it occurs 15 times in these two pages. Like everything is huge. The ship is huge, the sea is huge, the storm is huge, the, the, the city of Ninevite, Nineveh is huge, right? And, and Jonah almost seems manic depressive because his happiness is huge and his anger is huge. Like everything's huge and extreme in Jonah. And, and you're gonna see this over and over and over. And so as you're, as you're reading this, the point is that you're drawn into this story like oh my word look at this guy he's so stupid how could he run away from God and then and as you're getting caught up in the story if you're not paying attention what you realize is right at the end is like cliffhanger oh that that's what I am like okay so it's 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 not just comic for the sake of entertainment it's prophetic satire you're supposed to finish the story and go oh God is saying something to me and I want to change. I want to let God's, um, God's greater view of what's going on in this world change me and expose the, the sin and the hard-heartedness inside of me. Expose the racism inside of me. Expose the uh, small-mindedness inside of me. This story is designed to break down your small view of God and your oversized view of yourself. That, that's what the book of Jonah is going to be doing. And the irony kicks us in the pants right away because uh, in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And, and the reader is supposed to go, wait a second, I've heard that name before. What, uh, uh, what do I know about Jonah, son of Amittai? He actually shows up previously in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 14, uh, where he goes up to Jeroboam II and gives him a word from the Lord and by, by the way, Jeroboam II is like one of the worst kings Israel had ever had up until that point. A horribly evil man. Idol worshiper, child sacrifice. Like um, He was part of the northern ten tribes that had left Israel and become like, like the, this the divided kingdoms. You have the southern two tribes of Judah, the northern ten tribes of Israel. And he had led them into spiritual idolatry. Terrible person. And Jonah goes to him and says, the Lord's going to bless you and we're going to regain the northern territories again. And so uh, God has to send Amos the prophet later to undo that prophecy, to reverse that prophecy. But basically, Jonah already shows up in the Old Testament as a man who manipulates the word of the Lord for his own nationalist agenda, okay? He's trying to curry favor with particular nationalist uh, uh, politics, and he's, he's already suspect. And then you understand, oh my word, Jonah, son of Amittai, like his name literally means the dove, Jonah is uh, uh, the word for dove. So it's it a picture of innocence. And Amittai, his father, his name is, means faithfulness. So you get this. His, his name literally means I'm the innocent one of faithfulness. I'm the innocent and faithful one. And, and you're already supposed to go, ha, ha ha, That's not what I've heard about him. That's, that's kind of not the picture that I know about Jonah. And so already you're going like, wow, I'm a little suspect of this guy. And then verse 2, we jump in. He says, go to this great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Long story short, Jonah hated Nineveh. I wish I had time to go into this, but basically they were terrible people. And Jonah prided himself in hating them. Like they're they're so rebellious against my God, I have a right to hate them, okay? So that's kind of Jonah's attitude. And so already you're going like this man who manipulates God's word for his own nationalist political agenda is now being told to go preach grace and hope and salvation to the very people he hopes dies. And you're going like, what, this guy? What? No, that's not going to happen. You would think Jonah would love this. Like, yes, finally, I'm getting to go preach against them because of their wickedness. I'm going to call down fire. Boom, they're gone. And and what you begin to see is later in the book, that's not actually the message God's giving Jonah. He's going like, no, 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 preach salvation to them. Preach a chance at repentance to them. And he's, he's thinking, why? What? No. No. So verse 3, uh, Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord and he headed for Tarshish and he bound us, went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee away from the presence of the Lord. Now you need to see this. Jonah doesn't just sidestep God's command going like, I'm going to kind of not do that. No, no, Jonah hightails it the exact opposite direction for as long and as far as he possibly can. Tarshish was the literal place, if you notice here on the map. Um, Tarshish, well, look up here. Yeah, there we go. The middle yellow dot is where Jonah is. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, which is that way. (laughs) Instead, he's like, let me find the absolute farthest edge of civilization of the known world and go right to the edge of it. Like, Nineveh was the a- absolute last seaport stop before you got to the ocean, and they didn't really know what was beyond that at that point in history. And so, um, linguistically, Tarshish was used in a similar way. We might say something like Timbuktu. Right? Like, it's as far away as you can possibly imagine. Like, I'm going to hightail it to Timbuktu. I'm going to get out of here. Essentially, Jonah's going like, I'm going to go as far as a ship will humanly take me, that he knew of at this point. He's, he's not just sidestepping the, the command of the Lord. He is running as far away from God as he can, as, as long as he possibly can. Like, that's the plan here. And the reader's supposed to, like, marvel at the insanity of this rebellion. Like, what? That's crazy. Like, what? That is really far away. Just go to Egypt or something. He runs away from Nineveh because he cannot possibly imagine. He says this later in chapter 4. He cannot possibly imagine something so horribly awful in his mind that God would actually give a chance at salvation to these terribly disgusting people who are so different and, and, and do so many bad things and have such a different worship than I do. I cannot possibly imagine, God, you would give them a chance at... at at worshiping you and and saving them. Like this. Not the fish swallowing him. This is the major crisis in the narrative, which is later going to be resolved, but this is the major crisis. This is the major crisis, the crisis of receiving God's grace and being told to bring it to people that you really cannot possibly imagine turning to God. It's a crisis not of fear, but of faith. The crisis of the heart. Bring God's mercy and God's grace to people that you don't like. And, and I look at Jonah and I go, How do you get to the point of running from God where that seems doable and desirable? You are the man of God, you are a prophet. You have read Psalm 139, that there is nowhere you can run from the presence of the Lord. How do you get to the point of running from God? How do you run from God? He got there when he tried to fit God into a simple religious formula, and God was a little bit more interested in bringing his mercy to the whole world. How do you run from God? How do you get to the point where where running away from God just seems like a great idea? Try to contain him. And get exhausted trying to hold him in and watch him disappoint your selfish religious paradigms. That, that's how Jonah got to the point of running from God, right? So verse 4, The Lord then sends, sends a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Notice the intensity of the scenario starting up here. And they are throwing cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, contrast, irony, Jonah had gone down below the deck where he lay down and fell in a deep sleep. And the captain goes down to him and says, how can you be asleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we're not going to perish. Okay. So you have to notice that sleep is a very big picture in Jonah 1. Sleep is a very important image in Jonah 1. So now's not a good time to be sleeping on me, okay? Uh, Sleep is a very important image in Jonah 1. It's a picture in Jonah 1 of spiritual apathy. Like, not only is he physically falling asleep, the author of Jonah is depicting the similarity of him falling asleep in his relationship with God. Like, notice Jonah's descent here. Verse 3, he went down to Joppa, and then he went aboard down into the ship aboard the ship to go to Tarshish. And then verse 5, Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down into a deep sleep. And he goes down, 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 down. And, and so what the author's doing here is depicting a, a literal and spiritual slumber, a very powerful portrait that is intentionally painted by the author. This is an amazing story technique. He's depicting Jonah's sin as something that had led him into a spiritual slumber. It's almost like a sleep drug. He goes down, down, and he fell down into a deep sleep. So what's the crisis here? What's the crisis in the entire narrative of Jonah? It's the crisis that he's received God's call to go and proclaim God's message. To, to take part in God's expansive uh, world touring grace. And he wants nothing to do with it. Why? Not because he's afraid of Nineveh, but because, here's what happens, he thinks that he's on this side, and everybody else who's different from him, who doesn't worship like him, who doesn't think like him, everybody else is on that side, and God's on his side, and somehow that gives him license to treat all of them poorly. Jonah thinks that the world is a much more understandable and better place with Ninevites who don't get saved. Who get, who get annihilated. And so he, he thinks that he knows better than God, and, and he acts accordingly. And God's saying, I'm a little bit more interested in bringing grace to everybody here, Jonah. I'm a little bit more interested in this entire world than you're just your small little formula. This is the crisis, the sin of Jonah's rebellion. And so what happens is it slowly makes him fall into the spiritual stupor. Um, and it's like his sin has, has become this sleep drug where it's lulled him to sleep. That he's not even awake to what's happening around him. Right? Everything's going crazy. The, the ship is, going, is threatening to break up. There's a violent storm. There's a great wind. Everyone's crying out to any god he can think of. They're, they're tossing cargo overboard. And notice this. This is another ironic picture here. Everybody's awake except Jonah. Everybody's awake to what's happening, not only on a physical level, but on a spiritual level. The captain even comes down, and they're all calling on their gods, and he goes, how are you asleep? You're the man of God, because he told them so. He's running from the presence of the Lord. They know who he is. You're asleep. Call on your God. What are you doing? And, and this is crazy. Even in verse 4, it says uh, that the ship threatened to break up. That's how it's translated. It probably should be more accurately translated. The, thr- the ship pondered breaking up. Like, I could break up or I could not break up. But I think I'm going to break up because the crazy storm is out here. Like, everybody's awake. The ship is even animated in the story. It's like, it's awake to what's happening in the story. And Jonah, ironically, the one whose fault it is, the one who knows what's happening, he's asleep. like his sin has blinded him to what's happening. And now he's become this wrecking ball in the story of everybody else around him. And he's not even awake to it. This is the tragedy of this innocent dove of faithfulness. Jonah is being slowly overshadowed by the darkness of his own sin. And he can't even realize what's happening because he's fallen asleep. Verse 8. Well, getting up to verse 8, everyone goes, well, what's going on? This man of God is sleeping. Let's figure out whose fault it is. What, we've been trying all these prayers. What prayer do we need to pray? So the cast lots are just kind of like rolling the dice, and they, it falls on Jonah, ironically, and it's like God's going like, yeah, it's Jonah you need to talk to Jonah. And they go, what is going on? What do we need to do? Verse 8, they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble. What are you doing? Where are you going? What's your country? From what people are you? And they're asking him to explain himself. And he he basically rattles off a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo, like, yeah, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of heaven. Did you know he made the earth and the sea? And You're supposed to laugh at this because if if you're paying attention here, he says, I fear Yahweh, the maker of heaven, who made the sea. Like, what a joke, right? Like, no, you don't fear the maker of the sea. You're running from him on a boat. Like, that's supposed to make you laugh. Like, ha, you're just like... You don't even believe what you're saying. You're just kind of like mumbling some stuff out that you've heard before. And this terrifies, like he doesn't even, it doesn't affect him, but this terrifies everybody else. They're like, what are you doing? And the sea is getting rougher and rougher. And they ask him, what do we do? What do we do? And he says, throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know this is my fault and this great storm has come upon me. And you read that and you're like, oh, wow. There's, a, there's, a, there's like a small noble bone in Jonah's body until you realize like if he was actually repenting, he probably would have said something more along the lines of, this is my fault. We should turn the boat around and take me to Nineveh. Like if that was, he knows what he needs to do. He's even verbalizes his consciousness to this. He's like, I know what's going on. And, and I got to imagine God would have said, good boy, Jonah. All right. The sea is now calm, smooth sailing from here on out. Why don't you go back to, go back to Nineveh? No, no. But you, you you look at this, and this actually could be his most selfish act yet. Like, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh than dying? Like, oh, woe is me. It's my fault. Oh, just throw me overboard and kill me. That way I don't have to go to Nineveh. That's what's happening here. That's what he's doing, okay? and And so... What happens, verse 13, the men did their best to row back. They're like, there's more faith in the men, these pantheistic pagan sailors. They're like, nah, I think we should probably try to get you to land. Like, I don't think we should kill you. And he's like, no, you should probably kill me. And they're like, nah, let's keep... And then what happens is the storm gets so much more intense, and they're just going like, ah! Okay, we'll throw you overboard. And so they, as they're throwing him overboard, they're still repenting to God, to Yahweh. They... Notice this, verse um, 14. Then they cried to Yahweh, please don't hold this. This is, the fir- Excuse me. this is the first prayer uttered to Yahweh in the entire text. And who does it not come from? Jonah, the man of God, the one who has uttered oracles of God before. Who does it come from? These pagan pantheistic sailors who have no concept of who Yahweh is. They're much more awake to what's happening than Jonah is. He's, he's fallen into a spiritual sleep. And, like, notice this. Verse 5, all the sailors are afraid and they're crying out to their own God. Now, verse 14, they're crying out to Yahweh. Something has happened inside of them. God is beginning to wake up their heart. And Jonah can't even see it. He can't even see what's happening right in front of him, that God is changing the hearts of these pagans, that he was, like, he's a prophet. This is his job, to speak for the Lord so other people turn to the Lord, and, and he can't even see it. And, and actually, what's interesting is, verse 15, they took Jonah, they, they finally they threw him overboard, the sea grew raging calm, and they're like, at this, they greatly feared the Lord. Like, who only says he fears the Lord? Jonah, who greatly fears the Lord? These, these sailors who knew nothing about him. And they made a sacrifice to the Lord. Like implied here is a change of heart, but also a change of life. Because if they're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, you going to have to burn a couple goats or a cow on an altar that you built up. Are you going to do that on your wooden boat? No, so implied is they sail back to land. They find a Yahweh temple where the worship is dedicated to Yahweh and they make vows to him. They commit the rest of their life to him. Like something has happened inside of them and he's not even aware of it. He's just so turned in on himself, his sin has blinded him and made him fall asleep to everything that God is doing all around him. And guys, I can't imagine a better, more accurate description of what spiritual apathy looks like in this zip code, in this day and age. Right? like we we've got we've got the grace card, right so that's good, so like we're covered for that place we go after we die, um, and then we've just got, we got this life here. we just kind of grin and bear it and just get our way through and say we have a bad week. we can still show up on church on Sunday, feel good about ourselves or whatever, watch a, a sermon online, and I feel like I'm kind of back i'm going to play the grace card, and I'm good and and somehow American Christianity has fostered this system where Um, we have this mindset that, that we, that we, that God isn't really right here. He's just somewhere out there. So what I do right now, it's covered. I'm good. And so what you have is a whole culture of people who look exactly like Jonah. Jonah. Right, like You can spout off all kinds of theology. Do you know Yahweh, the maker of the heaven and the earth? Oh, yes. Did you know he made the sea and the dry land? Oh, yes, absolutely. Duh, duh, duh. But there's this deep contradiction between what he says and how he actually lives. And everybody can see it but him. Like The tragedy is that because of his sin, he's so drawn in on himself. Because he's trying to be the God of his own life. He's totally missing out that he's running from the only God who can give him life. So you go, is, is, there, is there any resolution here? Is Jonah going to wake up at all? Because you get verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was in the fish three days and three nights. You're not supposed to read that and go, hooray, great fish swallows him. Like when a fish swallows you, if it's even possible, You die. Or at least so we think, right? Like there have been recorded instances in history where like a sperm whale has swallowed a human whole. And in this oxygenless environment, you slowly begin to decay and get digested. It's it's not a a large open cavern. It's a literal stomach. It's an intestine, right? You're you're being digested. And so you think, oh, that's the end of it. Jonah's gone. He can't go any further to the bottom. Literally. Jonah's done. His story is over. And that might be true if we were dealing with any other god than Yahweh. Right? The maker of the sea and the dry land. And it's this story. You think about this story. You got, you got Jonah. He's asleep. Uh, he he's falls into this slumber. And he becomes a wrecking ball in the story of everybody else. And he finally meets the end. And he literally can't go any further. Like in chapter 2, he's going to depict himself as being under the roots of the mountains. And this fish, this this instrument of death, swallows him and takes him to the absolute bottom. And ironically, this is the moment where he's more awake and alive than ever before. He's awake for the first time in this narrative. Actually, for the first time that we see him at all in scripture, he's awake to the presence of Yahweh, to the, to the uh, command and the authority of God over his life. And Yahweh provides this instrument of what seems like death to swallow him up but right in this moment of finally throwing up his hands and surrendering and saying, I can't, he's utterly powerless. That moment of death becomes the moment of his new birth. He's finally awake. He's finally alive. He's, he's now living on grace. He should have died, but as we're going to see, God gives him a second chance. And now from this point on, he's totally living in grace. This is a bizarre vehicle of death actually turned into something of, of grace to give him a second chance, to give him a new life. Do you, do you begin to sense the gospel here? I'm, I'm hoping you're sensing this, right? Because actually later in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41, Jesus points to this specific instance in the book of Jonah. And the, the religious leaders come up to him and they say, give us a miraculous sign. He's like, I'm not going to give you a sign other than the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and just like that, so I will be in the grave three days and three nights. Jesus sees this moment where Jonah represents people, where God re- represents God's people. Jesus sees this moment where God is enveloping his people in death because of their sin and because of their rebellion. And they can't go any further down. Totally rejected God and rebelled. And all of a sudden, this moment of death has become a moment of new life, a chance at new life. And Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Jesus lives as the anti-type of Jonah. He's the exact opposite of what Jonah portrays. And and so Jesus has come. he's, He's lived this life that we can't live. He's become the human that we all aspire to be. And we murder him. Collectively, as a human race, we're responsible for why the world is the way it is. And Jesus died to pay the price of the world... Of, of the sins of the world because of the way that it is. Jesus dies, he rises again, and in this moment where Jesus now gets swallowed up in this instrument of death and God flips it on his head and brings him back to new life. Those who are found in Christ, those who have united with Jesus by believing in him and confessing him as Lord and following him, those who are united with Jesus now are brought into this death and into this new life where God says, I'm going to give you a second chance, a new chance at being human. I'm going to give you new life. So, I look at this and I go, man, how do you wake up spiritually? Something happened in Jonah in chapter 2, which we're going to see next week. And I go, how do you wake up spiritually? I don't know. Like I could write a book, like the seven steps to wake up spiritually, and you would sell it at Barnes & Noble. It could be a bestseller. And you've probably read books like that, and they don't work. Why? Like, how do you actually wake up spiritually? What is it that Jonah does? Like, if you're asking that question, please stop because that's the wrong question. Jonah does nothing, something is done to him. Something is done to him, and all he does is sink into the depths of his character, the thousands of hypocritical decisions that have made him this hateful person, and he just throws his hands up, and he's like, I give up, and it's right there in this moment where he's meeting his own death that God meets him right there and and flips things on his head and gives him a chance at new life. Jonah doesn't do anything to wake up. God's grace happens to him. God's grace happens to him, and he becomes awake to it for the very first time. Guys... We're not in the business of here of trying to make you good religious people. That's not what this is about. Together, we are all waking up to the fact that something has been done for us. Something has been done, and, and I don't know how to wake you up spiritually. I don't know how to wake myself up spiritually, other than to wake up to the fact that I am the strongest advocate for my own ruin. I am a deeply flawed person. I'm in desperate need of a savior and so are we. And that's precisely where Jonah lands. He just he throws his hands up in total surrender to God's messy mercy. So there's this conclusion that we have to come to. There's a conclusion that we have to come to that that for those of us who can be honest and self-aware, we have to recognize that at some level we are running from God. Maybe... The entirety of your life. You're 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 hightailing it to Tarshish. You're trying to avoid God. Avoid what God is speaking to you or speaking over you or, or living for Him. In your entire life, you're running away. But don't get too quick to judge those people because for every single one of us sitting here today and watching online, there is an area of your life where you are running from God. But there's there's this part of you that's not is not letting Jesus in. So we have to come to this conclusion that we truly start living when we finally stop running. We've got to stop running from God. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually submitted to him in the first place, and the Bible is very clear. You will find life and forgiveness and hope and a family, and joy, and an eternal future when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. What he did, he died on the cross to forgive me of my sin and rose again to give me new life. And then I confess him as Lord. I'm going to stop running from him. I'm going to submit my life to him. Maybe some of you, you've done that. But you need to identify the part of your life that's still ducking and dodging the merciful rule of God? Refusing to completely surrender. And and here's the thing, you need to make arrangements like today to let it go. Like right now. I heard something, someone said to me the other day, change is immediate. If you touch your hand to a burning hot stove, you're going to take it out. Immediately, you're going to remove it. Change starts immediately. In fact, if you don't change something the moment that you're compelled to, you probably never will. We live in this delusion that I, someday I'll get around to it, or my change is going to be slow and gradual, so I don't need to start right now. And while change does not happen overnight, it is immediate. It does start immediately. You're kind of fooling yourself if you think I'll get to it someday. Is there a part of your life where you're ducking and dodging the merciful rule of God, refusing to completely surrender right now? This moment is a very good moment to make arrangements to, to surrender. Not later today, not tomorrow. Frankly, I'm not even talking to the person next to you. I'm talking to you. like This, this is the mirror of God saying, like, Jonah didn't get it until God got him. Am I going to be that asleep that that's what it takes for God to get me? It may not be a literal fish, but the reality is God has given you an invitation here to truly start living. Like if we learn anything about the character and the heart of God revealed in this text, it's one of extravagant mercy and grace that cares deeply enough to give you a grave for your own self-ambition and self-autonomy. And a grace that brings you back to a Savior that is offering you new life on the other side of surrender. We truly start living when we finally stop running. God, I I pray that each one of us, myself included, receives your word this morning not with a hard heart but with a soft heart willing to surrender. Only you can do that inside of us, God. I pray that you would bring us to the point of surrender giving our best excuses, just laying them down. God, I pray that you would draw us close to you this morning. Amen.